Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. A couple of years ago, there was an article in uh, the New York Times, and it was this uh, an article written by this Canadian guy talking about how he went on a one-on-one month-long meditation retreat with a doctor in rural Alabama. Real weird long story. I won't give you the whole thing anyway. It was really well written. And uh, so I actually tracked down the writer, uh, the aforementioned Canadian guy whose name is Jeff Warren, and basically strong-armed him into uh, being my friend because the writing was so good. And over time, I learned that he's a really... He's got a ton of experience in meditation. He's actually a meditation teacher. And I subscribed to the newsletter for his little meditation group in Toronto. And the newsletter itself is so incredibly well written. And it looked like this group was doing so many exciting things. I honestly, at moments, felt like I wanted to move to Canada. The name of his group, by the way, in case you're curious, you can look it up, is the Consciousness Explorers Club. So anyway, over the moral of the story is that over time, I've actually become friends with Jeff and uh, have dragooned him into uh, participating in my little company, the 10% Happier App Company. And uh, we are uh, launching uh, on the app a a new course in which Jeff and I go off on a road trip to nowhere. We just go wandering. And over the course of those days, we have all these interesting conversations. We recorded every minute of it on video and we're with the drones and GoPros. And we're posting that on the app right now, which is why he's our guest this week. Uh, One more thing to say before I let you actually hear from Jeff. That road trip course uh, was so much fun, uh, and hopefully you guys will like it and give us feedback about uh, how we can do more and better in the future. We decided to do a cross-country road trip, uh, which Jeff and I are going to turn into a book and also many, 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 many more courses for the 10% Happier app. So anyway, after that long introduction, uh, I'm going to let you enjoy hearing from uh, Jeff Warren, who is awesome. Here you go. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Okay, before we get into deep weird, let me ask you some basic questions. How did you come to meditation at first? Wildly indirectly. Because you were a pretty hard partying, like, crazy guy. Yeah, I I was... uh... Uh, let's just say I wasn't interested in self-regulation. <laughs> that was not a priority through my uh, 20s. But I was very interested in consciousness. You know, I got interested in just uh, this sort of nerdy curiosity of what was happening in my mind. I'd actually, the but, w- What do you mean by consciousness okay. and why would you even develop an okay, interest so, in that? Right. Uh, so the backstory is when I was 20 years old, I was high out of my mind, and I fell out of a tree and broke my neck in Montreal. And it completely changed my style of processing. So my consciousness changed. I went from being a more linear thinker, although I'd been a bit ADD before, to being wildly associative. And it was a dramatic contrast. It was like, what the hell has happened to me? What do you mean by associative? Um, I couldn't keep my mind on a single track, skipping tracks, skipping tracks, but really, really creative. Like I could come up with lots of just sort of like I could connect this idea to this idea to this idea, but I couldn't stick through with an idea in the way that I used to be. So it was just a different, and I didn't know what had happened. Later I found out from a neurosurgeon that there's something called shearing, which is when you have a really, sometimes when you have a serious head trauma, the gray matter and the white matter are different densities, and there can be this thing where they kind of 
they they shear against each other and it just changes a whole bunch of connections or something. But all I knew from the inside is that I couldn't no longer perform in school the way I did. I was a good student. Uh, even though I had partied a lot, I was able to get what I needed to get done. It just changed my inner experience. So I was like, I got really interested in what was happening. Like, I, wh- wh- why are things different now? Uh, what's happening? So I started to read books about the mind just to try to understand how to get back to where I was. And that became the impetus. And then I just from there, I was just a curious guy. So I was I read a lot about I was I was interested in everything anyway. I read a lot of science. I was originally a literature major. And I found myself being really interested in people's descriptions of inner experience, like people describing ways in which they were aware. I mean, I, I now I, you know, when you look back on it, you see how you know, people talk sometimes in, 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 in the, quote, spiritual world about seekers. You heard that term, the seeker? Mm-hmm. It's like somebody who— It's kind of an annoying term. It's an annoying term, but it's a real kind of condition. It's a condition of being like feeling like something isn't right or something is missing and that you need to find the answer for it. And ultimately, it ends up in most cases being a, quote, spiritual answer, meaning it's an adjustment you need to make in your interior life. And that's what it was like for me. Like, I, I knew— something was up and I didn't know how to describe it. So I just was kind of wildly looking at whatever I could find. So I was doing lots of psychedelics, exploring those routes. I was reading tons about the mind. I was reading lots about neuroscience. I was reading whatever I could get my hands on. And that led ultimately to me writing an entire book about consciousness. Uh, even Called up, Head Trip. Right? Called The Head Trip. Yeah. The Head Trip. Yeah. So, which is about waking, sleeping, and dreaming, about how they work. But it was really about what are the... What are the fundamental ways in which we're aware over 24 hours? And what are those ways in which we're aware have to tell us about who we are and what we know and the way we know? So it was about dreaming. It was about uh, slow-wave sleep, about lucid dreaming. It was about the athlete's zone, about daydreaming, about uh, alertness. And it had a chapter because I felt like, okay, here I am writing about consciousness. I got to you know, at least gesture to these guys, the Buddhists, whoever they are. So I read a whole bunch of books about Buddhism and started doing a bit of a meditation practice there just to try to get a, a sense of it. But this I had, is still in your 20s? This is still, this is now in my 30s. Okay. But I didn't have any, you know, I didn't, before that I had no interest in it. I didn't, I, fe- I found the whole, you know, the kind of culty optics of it off-putting. And I'd even, I'd tried it out, went to, I remember going to one class and I just thought, oh, this is, I'm like the anti-Buddha. <laughs> I was like way too, uh, uh, you know, restless and scattered and, 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 and existentially angst filled. And it was just not going to work for me. Um, but I, I, I finally did go to one retreat and this is, this is in 2004, I think. And that was it. You know, I just, as soon as I got there, I just... I could see what it was that they were pointing towards in a certain way because I, I, first of all, the, the frontal lobe shut up for once so I could actually be in my experience without a huge running commentary. I know you've talked about that too. Uh, but it was also more the sincerity of the fellow meditators. Like there was something very moving. You may, I'm sure you've seen it when you're sitting in a meditation hall and you look around and it's just everybody is quiet and it and they're just trying to live with themselves you know and there's something really i found it very powerful i felt like wow they're just sitting down and they're facing who they are and in a way that's really brave that a way that i have never been able to do until then i would do anything to get away from myself you know whatever i could do at full speed yeah there was a study not long ago that said most people when given the option between uh given the choice between um being alone with their thoughts 
or getting electric shocks, they will take the latter. Absolutely. That's definitely how I felt because it was, uh, you know, it, it's a chronic overthinker, you know, continually scheming and and uh, and uh, strategizing and planning and how can I make this next moment go okay and this next moment go okay. It was it was exhausting. Um, and, and then and as you got deeper into meditation, you start to realize what's going on there. You start to see the way in which we're constantly negotiating with our experience, like this push and pull and gripping and friction and um, but at the time, I didn't. I just was unconsciously in it. So you, you know, that very first meditation retreat, just to have it kind of cool out for a bit, is it's a revelation. You know, it's oh my god, there's another way to, of being, um, and that kind of got me on on the road of of practice. But even then, it was I was very, um, you know, I was allergic to the more woo woo type claims. I just uh, I looked at it uh, in a very spare. Uh, sort of secular way, and, uh, and interestingly, that's changing too. That's that's evolving because the, the deeper you go in practice, the more you start to understand what the the mystical sides are pointing to. You know what that stuff, uh, what they might be saying, and you, at least it, it begins to make it you more open to it. I'll put it that way. Just out of, out of curiosity, who was leading this retreat you went on? They were called the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order, and they were like one of these Western Buddhist spinoffs. And they were. This is in Scotland, so it was in this. Um, what were they called? Fjords. <laughs> it was just one of these long lake things with like with Scottish mountains, highlands, and 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 everything was covered in moss. And this monk named Shramathra, Shramathra, or pardon me, I, I don't, I, I can't, I can't even, I could never pronounce his name. Then he had these long orange robes, and they were trailing. He, they would trail behind him as he walked. They were covered in dirt. And uh, but he was a lovely guy, and yeah, they were. I think they were formed in the fifties or sixties. You know, I mean, there's been there's a, the history of of how the West has been influenced by Buddhism and vice versa is fascinating. You know, and this was one of those iterations. And early uh, before all this current uh, love of all things mindfulness, there was an earlier love affair with Buddhism that happened in the West, and that and they were it was a product of that. So you did this first retreat, and then you, you, you've you gone pretty deep into teaching and all this stuff. So w- w- did, did that start right away, or what happened? No, it didn't start right away. I So I so I went to that retreat, and then I just kept going. And the, the first couple of years, it was like, okay, I felt like I had to do something to, to address my wild, out-of-control ADD and angst and my book came out, and I thought that would solve all problems in my life. That it would be wildly popular and heralded as a as a great work about consciousness. But it kind of came out and disappeared. And I realized that I was sitting there in my life, and I didn't hadn't solved any of the problems that I wanted to solve. And the only thing I knew how to do at this point that I felt that might be helpful was to continue meditating. So I would just I started going to whatever retreats I could. Uh, I went to IMS retreats at uh, Spirit Rock and in the states. I would go to local weekend sits in uh, in Ontario. I'm from Toronto. Uh, I would go wherever, and I would just get. And I found when I when I came back, I would feel calmer. I would feel more present. But then very quickly, the anxiety would start up again, and I would go again. Um, and I wasn't just doing meditation at the time. I also, around that time, finally started seeing a psychotherapist, thinking, okay, I'll take whatever help I can get just to help me get more grounded and sane. Um, and uh, But I, I wasn't really happy with any of the teachings that I got, I guess you could say. 
I, I, I appreciated the effects of the meditation, but every time it came to describing what was happening, I found it was like everyone was speaking, well, they were speaking Pali or Sanskrit in the sense that they had, it was all this terminology and vocabulary that was reflected of a certain era and a certain time with a certain set of assumptions around how it operated that was coherent and brilliant. There's no question. But I didn't know how to translate it to my experience. And I found that even in the, the typical, the big teachers of Western Dharma, they still used all the, the Buddhist jargon. And it, I didn't know, well, what did impermanence actually mean as an experience? You know, What was no-self as an experience? What, what is equanimity as an experience? Like, How do those things translate to what was happening? In it moment to moment for me, and I didn't find the answers that were forthcoming that satisfying. It wasn't until I met Shinzen Young, who kind of became my teacher, that he's a super geek, but it, because he's super geeky and super super rigorous, he was able to describe the dynamics of of consciousness in a way that that um, that I understood. Let me know? just jump in and say, tell people yeah. who Shinzen Young. Shinzen Young is a uh, American guy. Grew up in L.A., but uh, uh, very early on learned Japanese, and then went and studied uh, B- Buddhism in, in in Japan, and now lives in the U.S. and teaches people all over the place. He is. A, by his own description, a super geek. I think he's in his 60s now, um, but really, really smart, really, really interesting guy. You actually are the one who got me into him. He's got a new book called The Science of Enlightenment, and we recently interviewed him for the podcast. I don't know if it will have posted by the time this interview posts. Uh, Anyway, back to you. So you meet Shinzen, and what happens? So I meet Shinzen. Actually, what happened first is I, I listened. He had an audio series called The Science of Enlightenment, and it was like, Oh my God! Finally, it was like some, someone finally explained. I mean, when I say explained it, I mean explain the whole parameter of what a practice is. So, in the in the kind of secular world of mindfulness, there's lots of wonderful explainers of kind of uh, introductory meditation, basic orientations to what to do and what's happening. But there's sort of behind it, there's this whole uh, other all these other dimensions to practice, the so-called deep end, like the the claims around how it changes and transforms you in a more permanent way. Um, all that stuff is there in Buddhism, and it's kind of glossed over in the secular take on mindfulness, mostly because people don't know what to make of it or how to talk about it in a way that's not uh, going to cause a whole bunch of react, reaction. And what I found about Shinzen that was so refreshing is he was interested in talking about everything. And he could describe how you could go from being a beginner meditator to this much, this different place, this deeper place, whatever you want to call it, or a more fundamental place. And he, he would describe the dynamics of the qualities of attention, how they contribute to that. And it was through those descriptions I was able to start to come to understand what was going on in my experience, A, but also begin to create a, uh, a model in my own head for what was happening. And that, by the way, is super important. It's like you're constantly having an interplay and practice between your understanding of what's happening and your actual experience. And your, your experience deepens, and then you update your, your, your conceptual model. And then, and then your experience deepens, and you update your conceptual model. But sometimes you have an amazing talk with somebody, you update your conceptual model, and that allows you to see something more deep in your experience. So there's a two-way relationship right, there. Right. And he finally gave me a framework or a model that, that I could then begin from. And since then, uh, you know, I brought in my own interest in consciousness and my own understanding of, from talking to other people in other fields to build on, on, on my understanding. Some of the stuff you just talked about, while really interesting, could be a little theoretical to folks, yeah. especially mm-hmm. um, you know, people who are new to meditation or who, or who are not meditating at all. 
So, so in very practical terms, what did he say that made your meditation practice better? Uh, well, the, the first thing he said is uh, mindfulness isn't some uh, is is too general. That actually mindfulness is built up of specific attentional skills, and the ones that he talks about are uh, concentration, clarity, and equanimity. And each of these uh, qualities of attention, these sort of like you can think of them as sort of attentional muscle groups, they can be identified, and you can and you can actually begin to notice when each of those qualities is activated in your experience. And so as soon as you do that, now you have a feedback. So now you know when you're actually getting, quote, more mindful. It's not some general abstract injunction to pay better attention to your cereal or to the traffic or to whatever. It's to know what it's like to be concentrated. It's to know what it's like to be clear. It's to know what it's like to not to be equanimous or to not struggle with your experience. Those things became uh, tangible tastes in my experience. And as that happened, it, it literally accelerated my development as a meditator because now I could see when I was actually being mindful. Um, so that and was or, in order to be mindful, you have to be all three of those. Well, he would say his definition of mindfulness is being all three of those: is being concentrated, which means you're, uh, which doesn't mean you're in a narrow beam of attention. It means you're able to pay attention in the direction you want to pay attention to. So in my case, I'm paying attention to what you're saying. I'm concentrated. You're concentrated on me. Fine. That's that's how it goes. And we know that over the more concentrated we are in any activity, the more inherently rewarding or pleasurable it is. So whether you're, you know, uh, gambling <laughs> or you're having sex or you're in a sport, it's the zone. It's Csikszentmihalyi called it flow. So it's just, so you can, so that's the absorbed direct, the, the, the kind of thing about being directed. Now you have clarity, which is about, uh, which is really interesting. It's about noticing the texture of your experience. So that sounds, at first glance, sort of weird. When you're hanging out in everyday life, you're just going along. There's your thoughts. There's you know feelings in your body. There's sounds around you. As you begin to pay more attention to it, you can begin to notice more texture in the sounds. The thinking process, you can begin to parse apart into images and talk. And then below that, you can start to notice all these very subtle body sensations that are constantly motivating you to react in this way and react in this way and little tiny subtle emotional expressions and so the longer you look at your own experience the more elaborated that it gets so that the resolution increases so that's the sanity side of of mindfulness where you begin to understand how you're being driven in all these ridiculous ways by these sensations so um, that's a clarity piece Um, and then the equanimity piece is around not actually fighting with your experience. So um, it's kind of a hard one to explain. It was the, that was the one that really opened everything up for me. I realized that until that moment, I was, there was a constant um, kind of inner struggle uh, of, you know, uh, you know, I like this, I don't like this. I like this, I don't like this. I like this person, I don't like this. Uh, you know, this moment, I'm, I'm not into it. Uh, I need to do something else. I need to move over here. I need to move over there. This, this like, little restless, like, rah. And, <laughs> and, you know, and I started to notice that. And then to be equanimous is to let yourself have that feeling and all the other stuff that's there. And as you open to it, it just can empty out. And then it's just not there. It's not there as that motivator. And what, what are you left with? You're left with feeling more spacious and more peaceful. So it was like, so understanding, so his descriptions of those, uh, but then also he described for me uh, what I would call, what I still think of as the fundamental dynamic of practice in terms of how it works. And it's a very uh, religious sounding word, although there's an analog 
Uh, there's a corollary in, 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 I think, Western ways of thinking about it. And that has to, and the word is purification. Um, and so in the religious traditions and contemplative traditions, it's associating Christianity with like, you know, these mortifications of the flesh and all this kind of stuff. Um, I think a, a much more real way to say it is just to say it's like working through your shit, basically. <laughs> that the more you pay attention to what's going on in your experience, the more you open to it, the more those patterns can actually kind of get worked through and empty out so they're not motivating you in the same way. So they would call it catharsis within a within a psycho a depth psychology, you know, tradition way of working. So you start to understand how purification works, like how the more equanimous you are with your experience, the more you're able to empty out these neurotic patterns to come to a place of comparative spaciousness and sanity and and I got and that's still where I'm I mean I've spent the past 10 years thinking intensely about and trying to understand how purification works, what it looks like, how to rebrand it, because it sounds frankly creepy, <laughs> but but just you know working through your shit, what that actually means, what it looks like, and what and what what kind of places does it bring people to? What's a what's a realistic goal if you're taking this pra- uh, taking this practice? You know, are you how how what does mental health look like? You know, and these are huge general questions. And, and how does Buddhist, how do Buddhist practices get you there in a way that's different than practices from other contemplative traditions versus Western practices of like humanistic practices, philosophical practices, art practices, you know, it's not like the West has a monopoly on uh, human fulfillment. There's all kinds of ways to work with our um, inheritance. And so there's Eastern ways and Western ways. And so that became my interest is like trying to map all these out. Like, okay, how do they work? Uh, how, where, where are there shared dynamics here? Where is there something that's unique to that tradition uh, or that technique? Is that like the, the roots of your next book, which seems like it may get published in the year 2035 as I've been following the <laughs> yeah. progress of it. But you've been working on a book yeah. about enlightenment yeah. since before I knew you, which is a couple of years ago. Yeah. And so are you describing kind of the germs of this book that you've been working on forever and that uh, seems seems to be kind of um, not yet uh, finished? And probably it may never be finished. Uh, well, no, that book is, it's sort of, that book is about uh, the progress of insight, which is a particular, it's a Buddhist way of working. It's an old school Theravada Buddhist way of working uh, where it's basically mindfulness, where you pay attention to your experience for long enough, for intense enough durations, you start to see uh, the that experience in a new light. They they talk about the three characteristics. You, you start to notice that it's constantly changing. Uh, I mean, literally moment to moment, the pixels of your experience are vibrating in and out of existence. Uh, you start to notice uh, how there's a kind of a, a weird tension in the in the experience. That so I'm ha- just going to stop you on the pixel thing for a second, because yeah. I think people that that's going to sound weird to people. Yeah. Um, uh, but 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 really, what what the Buddhists are talking about in meditation mm-hmm. is if you actually get focused enough on your life on your experience right now mm. it you'll see how impermanent everything everything's flying i have a, uh, everything's flying by really quickly i've got a pain in my knee i'm mm-hmm. thinking about cheese i'm uh feeling cool uh, breeze on my face it's just bang 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 and then you start if you really get concentrated you will see that it pixelates yeah. it's like breaking a movie down to its 24 frames exactly. per second and so uh, this is not. This is an experience that is available to anybody. It is not. Um, it's a, you just have to probably sit on retreat for a while <laughs> and, and, and be concentrated just on what's happening in your experience right now. But but anyway, that is the sort of first step, I believe, in or one of the first steps in in what's described as the progress of insight. Right. So there's a the progress of insight is basically um, 
uh, it's a way of describing the uh, the the developmental arc of a mindfulness practice taken to a very uh, done in a very serious way over many consecutive days. And so there's a set of, of insights that emerge from that, among them that the insight into impermanence, which you just described. And I would just add to that, it's not just that you see that the content of your experience is constantly changing. The form of your experience is constantly changing, meaning it's just like if you go, if you're far away and you're looking at a TV screen, it just seems like there's the images and there's the content, the images are changing. But then you go right up to the screen, you see that all of the images are made up of like, you know, red dots, blue dots, green dots, like white dots, all these little tiny dots that are coming in and out. It's the same with our experience. It's just built by the brain. It's assembled from all this material and put together into like a model. And so you see that the whole model of, reality of experience that you're inside is basically it's constructed it's not, it's not saying there's not a real world out there it's just saying that you notice the constructedness of it and noticing that is actually quite liberating because you can begin to live from the place that knows that that's just a construction so i mean that sounds very abstract but uh, this is the thing about the progress of insight you get insight after insight first into all your own neurotic shit, then in more deeply into how you as an animal construct your experience and these insights they're very, very subtle when they happen, but they're profound, and they, they lead to subtle shifts in the way, in their operating assumptions of how, you're, how you relate to your friends, how you relate to different things. You just see that there's a, you can live from this place that's much lighter and more uh, easygoing in a way. Uh, you're not so fixated on things. Like, we're so fixated on this having to go this way or this having to be like this or reality is like this or this is like this. And it's just, you're just like, yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> things are just coming and going. Things are coming and going, and there's parts of me in it, and there's parts of me that aren't in it, and I can just be more uh, laissez-faire about this whole. Yeah, well, does that make you completely ineffective? Um, no, uh, uh, that's a kind of a classic misconception. What it does is it clears the way for you to actually make better critical decisions when you need to make them, because there's less uh, noise. You get a better signal-to-noise ratio. Whereas before, you're acting often from reaction with all this other shit all happening all around you, all your multi-layers of reaction. Now it's just a clear, clean signal of what's actually happening in the situation, and that allows you to make a, a clean response. So in that way, it's much more sane and you can be much more effective. However, in other ways, insofar as you were fixated before, it, that you were motivated to do things because you, you were trying to control your experience or, or, or in a particular kind of way or you were fearful about this, that stuff does drop, drop away. And then so whatever motivating things that you had that were, were driven by those kinds of fixations, that can drop away. So you lose the motivation to do it then. So, and that's something that's actually underreported in the meditation literature. So, for example, I, I remember I was, I was actually funnier at parties before I meditated. I was funnier because I wanted people to like me. Like I wanted to be saying funny shit and like making funny jokes and doing all that stuff. And, and so I was on my mind. I was constantly doing that. So people would say, I remember a friend saying to me, it's like, yeah, you know, you're not as funny right now. And it was true because I didn't care. <laughs> you know, I probably was still funny in certain ways, but I didn't. The part of me that was being funny because I wanted to be liked, that part got weaker. So then it was just, yeah, you, sometimes you're funny, sometimes you're not, whatever, who cares? You're not trying to uh, micromanage every moment of your experience in the same way. And so that's the part that, that, do, that can drop away. And that can mean that people can get 
definitely more easygoing in certain arenas. So, And it's important to know that because insofar as there's a fixation that you have that you think is really important or good for you, that might be affected by meditation. You know, I would make the argument that most of our fixations aren't ultimately that good for us, but, you know, that's up for people can make that decision on their own. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. So what what is enlightenment and have you achieved it? Oh, my God, dude. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, First of all, uh, I'm Canadian, so... Uh, I, I can I could say that I have whatever enlightenment comes from being Canadian and having a good healthcare system <laughs> is about the only one I'm ready to claim. Um, enlightenment's a word. It's a word that's used differently in different traditions uh, by different people, by different teachers, by different schools. Um, I guess when I first wrote the head trip, I had a chapter all about meditation, and I did everything I could to avoid that word and to because the whole thing seemed like a ridiculous uh, sort of movie advertisement for the uh, for Santa Claus or something like that was somehow possible to win the game of being human. Um, <laughs> but the more I read or at ab- least win at meditation or win at meditation or whatever it is. But the more I read about it and mostly the more I interviewed practitioners and teachers who had been at it like Shenzhen for, in his case, 50 years. But many, many of my friends have been meditators for, you know, 20, 30 years. The more I began to see that the ways in which people talked about the, uh, these changes, they all seem to line up in a particular kind of way that I found really compelling. And I would say that that direction, if you want to call it something, you can call it, that's a, that's a, that direction is realization, that direction is awakening, that a direction is enlightenment, that it's not a thing that you arrive at, it's more of a direction that you head in. And the, the more you go in that direction, the more uh, everyone else is going that direction and is, is succe- successfully begin to share certain qualities. And those qualities tend to be a certain amount of uh, peacefulness, uh, a kind of an easygoingness, a, a, a sort of liberated energy quality, a spontaneity. Um, uh, and it, basically more and more they begin to operate 
uh, as though they're just part of a larger system as opposed to one little piece trying to get your way within that system. So I sometimes think of enlightenment as, do you remember that show Arrested Development? Mm-hmm. The dude, the, remember the blue man dude? Yeah. Who, who would suddenly like, he would suddenly move and he'd realize that he was standing in front of that background the yes. whole time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I think of the average human condition is like our insides are like a Jackson Pollock painting. And then, and it's superimposed over another Jackson Pollock painting, which doesn't actually match it. And it's just like, it's, it's internal discord and external discord. The longer you practice, the more your internal discord becomes more and more, um, th- your mind and body all kind of line up. So you're, you're not fighting with yourself as much. So you get more and more, say, a single tone. And then, the, and then you more and more fade perfectly into the background as also being the same tone. So it's like you become that blue man person. You kind of become transparent. Meaning, not that you you you're not still there. You're still there as awareness, but you're just going along with the world in a much more easygoing way. You're not fighting with it as much. You kind of merge with reality, or you synchronized with reality, experience, whatever you want to call it. That's my working model of what's happening um, when you when people say that word awakening. And I know almost every meditator I know who's been at it for ten years is is moving along that continuum in a sense that they're good. They're getting more that way. When do you arrive at some final place? Is there some final place you can arrive at? Different people have different opinions about it. I've never, everyone I've ever met who, even someone like Shinzen who's been meditating for 50 years, he's wildly neurotic still. There's still, there's all kinds of ways in which he might still act like a dick. You know, I, I don't think, maybe there's some guy in some mountain in India who's perfectly enlightened. It's possible. I don't know enough about it. But it seems to me that it's more like lots of people just struggling to be better humans and finding their way into more fulfillment and less suffering. And, and and we really should just get rid of that word because it makes it seem way more grandiose as opposed to just say, hey, there's a continuum of practice that we can get into that is going to make our lives better. But there are there are landmarks along the way. There are yeah. big experiences allegedly that you can have. You know, yeah. this progress of insight that you were yeah. describing before has these very key moments of nirvana, right? That's a pretty yeah. big word. Uh, basically, in, in the in the Buddhist conception, and in, in this school of Buddhist uh, Buddhism, the conception is that it's a, like a, a cessation moment. The lights yeah. go out, and uh, your mind is fundamentally altered henceforth. Um, mm-hmm. Do you you think that is true? And have you mm-hmm. tasted any of that? Of course, yeah, yeah. But that happens. Of course, well, many times on retreat, I've had experiences of like uh, of things all disappearing, of things arising in. Uh, the, the rising and passing stuff, which just happens early, these deep states of equanimity, and then you're in a deep state of equanimity, and there's uh, where meaning like you're absolutely present with everything that's happening, and then there's a sudden shift. You know, uh, I've never noticed the uh, the dropping out for myself, but there's lots of people who will tell you that it doesn't mean it's not. It's like it doesn't mean it's not happening. It's like you could be dropping out in all these different ways and coming back up. The the way you know is that afterwards, there's often a surge of energy or a surge of equanimity that'll last for a few months or a few weeks. And um, so, but I don't, I mean, when you're getting into the world of comparative experience, how do you know what, is this an awakening? Is this not an awakening? Like, or is this just a, a peak experience? Is this, like, I don't know. And there's no, so there's you no, may have entered nirvana and you just don't know. Maybe I entered and didn't know, you know, it's like everyone I know who's had deep cessation experiences ends up going back to the self always comes back as Shinzen would say. I mean, there, but there's there's something really important to explain here, which is that, you know, these are artifacts of a particular way of working. You are working to boost the sensory resolution of the of your experience. When you boost the sensory resolution of your experience, so you can see things extremely clearly. Uh, for a certain kind of temperament, 
they can have they can see so clearly because they're so concentrated and they're so clear that they can just flicker out and then they can end up they can disappear and that feels like a reset button for the mind and they've seen into the fundamental emptiness and yada 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 and it's wonderful and guess what there's a million other temperaments that are never going to have that there's a million other techniques and different traditions that never talk about a cessation they never talk about any of this stuff and yet these people when you look at them over 20 30 40 years they're living more fulfilled lives they li- they live lives that look a lot like the lives that these like these pointillist you know sensory clarity freak buddhist monks are living so there i don't think there's anything special about the buddhist path of insight that's any any more special than any other tradition's path of coming more into the world so the more you get hung up on the special effects of this one path the more you're just like you know, you're just losing the plot of what's really actually important. I mean, someone does need to write a book to kind of clarify some of this because there's so much confusion and misconception around it. And even I'm still confused about it. Like, I'm just trying to figure it out, you know. What I can say is I'm less of a dick in my life. So whatever that means. <laughs> so well played. Um, okay, we, we, we've gotten pretty weird, um, which is one of your great gifts. But you also, just to give you credit, you you really are great at... at um, just getting under the hood with anybody, including me, and, and talking about meditation practice at, at a beginner level, intermediate, et cetera, et cetera. So one of the things you and I did recently that I would love to just get, get you to talk about was we um, there's this new course that's posted on the 10% Happier app where, uh, just by way of background, I'll step back for a second. On the app for a long time, basically since we started, which wasn't actually that long ago, about a year ago, we all of our courses have been pretty static. It's like me sitting talking to a meditation teacher like Joseph or Sharon or whatever and then we chop it up and we give you like a couple minutes of me talking to this person and then it, uh, on video and then we go right into a guided meditation. Um, I was getting really bored and frustrated with that and uh, our mutual friend, Eddie Boyce, um, who's been doing some freelance video production for uh, 10% Happier, said, hey, why don't we like get out of the studio and just, he mentioned that for years, um, meditators have been doing this thing called wandering retreats, where they just go off with no itinerary. And I was like, oh, I know the perfect guy for that. Let's do, uh, let's get Jeff. And as it turns out, Jeff and you, you and Eddie are, uh, are, are close friends from a long, long time ago. So we went off and did this. Well, you, you tell the rest of the story. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. So you you got, you had this idea that we were going to do a wandering retreat, uh, and that meant that we actually weren't going to have any itinerary whatsoever. We were just going to meet and spontaneously decide what to do. So you came to New York City. So we came to New York City, and you had the cameras out, and we sat we sat there with the cameras on, going, "Hey, let's spontaneously decide what to do." And it was hilarious and awkward, and we decided <laughs> to go camping. Uh, we got in our which car, which I hate, which you hate. Um, and we got in the car. We drove sort of aimlessly around until we found a campground that we liked. And the cars loaded up with GoPro cameras. We had right. a drone. We had like yeah, everything. Yeah. We had, Ed brought it. He like he was kitted out. He had, we had all the all the tech goodies. Uh, and then we just basically uh, wandered around for two days and just took every opportunity. Depending on what was happening, we would just decide to spontaneously do a practice, this kind of a meditation practice or this kind of a meditation practice. I mean, what, what, what you realize when you're, you know, life affords you infinite possibilities to pay more attention to what's actually happening, not just around you, but what's inside you. And so 
that was, I think, kind of the theme was to be just spontaneous and responsive and just see where it took us. And it ended up being a really fun couple of days. It was. I hate camping, but I love you. So it was a great we had a great time. And the whole crew we were with was super cool. The CEO of the, the our app company was there and Eddie Boyce, who I love. And then the, uh, 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 Dennis and, and what was the, the cameraman? Dennis was the audio guy. And, the, and then the camera guy, who I'm so mad that I'm forgetting his name. He was great. It was a whole fun crew. And you know what? I realized uh, doing it as much as I really don't like being uncomfortable and I do like um, staying in nice hotels. You know, the, the, it reminded me of that story. There's this story where the Buddha's attendant is this guy named Ananda. Ananda um, comes back to the Buddha after a particularly invigorating uh, conversation and says, like, God, Buddha um, – or whatever he called them, um, you know, it's like it's talking to somebody about the Dharma or meditation or being alive is, um, it's like half the path. It's half the the work. And the Buddha's like, no, 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 you're wrong. It's actually the whole thing. And that was the feeling that I got after hanging out with you guys and particularly you for all that period of time. Like, and as much time and energy as I spend advancing my practice, like spending two days in really deep and fun conversation about it is you can take a quantum leap in that yeah. way. Well, that's what I, I said earlier about um, how your, uh, your, your intellectual model of what's going on is, in, is in a constant dialectic with your changing experience. And that actually the more – that's why it's useful to read a books about, about Buddhism, books about practice. Like it'll, it'll refresh your understanding in a way that allows you to see a new thing in your experience. And then you can go deeper into your experience and then it takes you somewhere where you're – that is beyond what your model had in mind. So then you got to update the model. And then you go – so it's like there's a constant back and forth. And some practitioners will tell you, oh, it's all about discarding the concepts. You have to just go straight totally into experience. But you can't discard the concepts. You're a human being. You, know, you we we have a concept all the time of what's happening around us that we actually need. So I think a, a, in my mind, my favorite teachers are ones who who teach me to go deeper in my experience, but have thought enough about the model of what's going on that every time I'm in discussion with them, it's enriching my own sense of what's possible. And so hopefully that that you know so and apparently that comes out <laughs> for you. Yeah. yeah, I mean for me, it's even sort of even less high minded than that in some ways. And this is where I think. For, for somebody who's listening, it's not that um, you need to go spend two days with some great teacher in order to um, uh, derive the benefits that I'm describing. What I'm saying is that if you're really into meditation or even mildly into meditation, it helps to hang out with other people who are into it and or teachers because – this stuff runs against the grain of our of of habits that have of mind that have evolved over millennia, right? Yeah. Um, to to pay attention to what's happening right now, to not be a jerk, to uh, not reflexively pursue the pleasant and rigi- and push away the unpleasant. Um, th- these are these are really fascinating and healthy and but counterintuitive things and being around other people who are engaged in the same pursuit can normalize it for you and and strengthen your resolve to continue whereas doing it on your own stuck in your bedroom day after day can can i feel isolating you can get into like whole cul-de-sacs of doubt about whether you're doing it right whether it's worth doing it all so anyway that's what i hope people take away from or one of the lessons i think people take hope people take away from it 
and, and I just want to say that people, you, you, if you're listening to this, you can check out this course, which is my favorite course we've done uh, on, you know, for parts of it for free right on the app, uh, on, which is available in the App Store or on if you don't have a lot of people are a little bummed at us because as of right now, we don't have an Android app. We only have an Apple app. But if you don't have Apple uh, device, you can see it on 10 percent happier dot com. Um, the other thing I wanted to say, though, about that that really shone through for me about spending time with you on this retreat was that you have a like a fundamentally playful attitude about meditation. Mm-hmm. So and I just love to get you to free associate about that a lot because I think it's it's a it's a very to use a liberate uh, a loaded term. It's a liberating approach. You don't really you really don't treat meditation as this grind mm-hmm. that we need to you know plow through. You it's like you really try to frame it as a as an exploration in fact the name of your meditation group in Toronto is the consciousness explorers club so that will give people a sense of your the spirit with which you're approaching it so i'm going to shut up and can you talk a little bit about that <laughs> sure sure um well you know, i meditation is two things it's in my mind it's an exploration and it's a training uh so which is kind of paradoxical because you're going in there and you're exploring you're learning things about who you are but as you're uh, doing the exploring, you, the exploring is changing who you are. So there's a there's a changiness happening too, and I think that the two sides of it are the exploring side is just there is so much more going on in your experience than you realize, and if you just stop long enough to take a look, it just opens in all these really interesting ways, and that in itself is fascinating, and you can go get into all kinds of you know really interesting uh, insights and areas of learning. But the other side of that is it's a training which means that you don't have to just take your freaking human condition uh, for granted. Like, here it is. This is how it is. And I just, I, got, I guess I got to just stay in this neurotic body with this neurotic stuff. It's not like that at all. You know, practice is play. You can play with how you relate to the world around you. You can re- cognitively reframe it. You can, you can uh, boost up certain qualities and lower down other qualities. Like, it's like you, in Westworld, they do with the robots. Like you, 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 they, they just do a totally. little slide on the computer to make you more aggressive it's, or whatever. It's like, I, I, absolutely, it's like that. You know, I, I think of it sometimes as being like a DJ that you're, here's your life and like what you can start to choose, the kind of tempo you can choose to bring this effect in, you can choose to bring this down. It's like you're basically in this sort of special effects studio of your own experience. And once you learn what you're doing, you can start to uh, adjust the levels, exactly like you're saying. And, and you can adjust them. And, and how, how do you want to adjust them? You can adjust them whatever is important to you. But obviously, if you're smart, you're going to adjust them to make life more fun. Because what, what else are you going to do? You're going to make your life so you're more fulfilled, so you're more, you have a better capacity to respond to challenges, so you can be a better friend, so you can, you know, it's just that you start to see that. Uh, and you can adjust your playfulness. So you're, jet, you're, 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 you're relating to the people around you, to the world around you in a, in a way that's more buoyant and playful. And that's just a practice like anything else. There's not how, a s- how do you do that practice? Like, what, what would you actually do to adjust the playfulness? Um, uh, well, I, uh, these are kind of more top-down practices. Okay, um, define that, though. Okay, so um, uh, bottom-up practices are like you're slowly building up your levels of concentration. So, so you focus on the breath, and every time you get yeah. distracted, you come back you to the breath, back. and then that like actually you're doing builds reps. up your focus. Yes. So you're doing reps. You're slowly building up your ability to pay attention more, or you're slowly building up your ability to be clearer. So you're slowly making these changes to the organism, just like you would if you're working out in a new way or you're doing a new sport. So that's coming up from the bottom. Coming down from the top is instantaneously in the moment deciding to experience reality in a slightly new way. So for example... I, I mean, just give you a totally made-up example. Uh, I'll, I, I decide to relate to you that you're the Buddha, 
Okay, there's Dan in front of me, and he's the Buddha. And all of a sudden, I'm seeing, I decide to see you as the Buddha, or I say, see everybody around me as the Buddha. And then it becomes kind of comical and hilarious because everyone around you is sort of like the Buddha. And there's the Buddha falling on hard times. He's like a, he's, there's the bum over there, and there's the Buddha who's hitting on another Buddha. And everything just becomes kind of comical. And I, it's just a, it's just a mental set that you, bring into your experience and you decide to try to hold that mental set for as long as you can. And then like any other practice, it fades and then, and you reestablish it. So this is a very, more of a Hindu way of, of, of working. Like you hear these kinds of practices a lot in Hinduism, but you can do things like, for example, you, you change the mental set to experience like life is fundamentally friendly. So reality is friendly and there's like, reality likes you, it cares about you and you just practice what it would be like to feel that. You know, and and it, at first it's like you're faking it. You, it seems like, oh, that's weird. But you just keep trying to do it. And the more you do it, the more it starts to actually feel that way. I mean, we are already walking around in our own set of prejudices about how we think reality works. We're already in one. I mean, people think that they're, quote, neutral. They imagine that they've just like, that they're actually totally balanced and neutral. But they're already, they've already inherited a set of assumptions from the culture, from their upbringing, about how to relate to the world around them. So because that's true... You can change it. You can choose to make some new ones. So, and they, for me, most of those are kind of like, they're, they tend to be kind of top down things. I'll just play for something for half a day. And then, and the more you do it, the more they kind of stick. So, if that makes sense. I mean, I know this is weird. We always end up in these weird, like, we don't have to go into these weird conversations. We can talk about the breath. We can talk about something very ordinary, but you bring out the weird in me because you want to hear it. Yeah. I don't know how hard I have to work to bring out the weird in you. It's, it's yeah. pretty much right there. Yeah. Um, but speaking of weird uh, and playful, we're, so now we were inspired uh, by this road trip thing that you and I did, which was kind of a flyer. We were just testing out to see if it worked. Um, to, to do to go like big, uh, so we did two days of camping. Now we're doing twelve days of a cross country road trip. <laughs> we're we're planning it out right now. We're leaving soon um, uh, to go from New York to L.A. with like a bunch of stops in the middle, and and then we're gonna write a book about it, which is gonna be kind of what we want to be the best how to meditate book mm-hmm. for beginners and even for people who are already doing it ever. And it's going to be short, like you can fit in your pocket. Um, and the goal is we're going to go across the country and try to figure out like what is stopping people from meditating. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people know they should do it, but what, but don't do it. Like my wife, for example. Uh, so what's, who's going to be one of the, she's going to be the first person we <laughs> talk to on the road trip. We're going to go have breakfast with her um, and our, my son uh, who's two and definitely doesn't meditate. What is stopping people from meditating? And also, like, what is it that's kind of, if they're meditating, what's, you know, keeping them from going deeper, doing more, upping their game? So we're going to go out there and, like, you're my, uh, I, I'm not a teacher, so you're, like, the meditation MacGyver, as I call you. And we're going to, like, unleash you on, on folks and <laughs> do a little plumbing. Um, uh, so uh, do you have any, like, thoughts about what we should do or how it's going to go, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, just hoping that we don't cause any brain injuries. Uh, uh, we'll stay clear away from. We'll, st- we'll steer clear of some of the weird stuff for sure. Um, no, no, no. I, well, at least in the conversations between yeah. me and you, will go pretty weird. Yeah. You no, know, I'm. I'm just open to whatever happens. I mean, I. I mean, I work with all different kinds of people, and I just. I. I. I like people. I like trying to figure out. You know what makes them tick. I like trying to figure out where they're. What's what part of them is fighting with what other part? You know, it's like. When you start teaching after a while, you start to see patterns in how people come to you uh, and the kinds of struggles that people have. You begin to realize that there are certain techniques that work better for certain kinds of temperaments, for certain kinds of, and, you know, I could, I haven't 
you know, I haven't written a book yet that like lays out the different flavors of that. But when I meet somebody, I can almost, you know, within a few minutes as you start talking to them about their experience, I can I can at least begin to see where there are potential areas to work with. And then once they get into a practice, you can start to uh, there's going to be a natural certain people are going to naturally be drawn to uh, working with the body. That's it's going to be a place that's, that they're going to want to go to. Some people are going to like much prefer working with sound. Some people are going to want to do more like surrendery practices where they're not actually doing anything. They're just sort of like letting themselves be. Others are going to need more of a type A discipline. You, you, so you start to see that there, there are all these different ways of working that, but when, once you're interacting in real time with people that you can start to, you know, give them the right feedback, hopefully. I mean, a lot of it's just is probably luck and chance and all these other things too. And so that's what I'm excited about. Like we're going to run into every kind of random person in any kind of different situation. Uh, and it's going to be in my mind, like how, how to make this practice potentially relevant to them. Uh, but do, but doing it in a non creepy, non prosethalizing way, it's just more about, we're not going to like tell people, we're not going to no. finger wag and say people should meditate. Definitely not. That's very annoying. It's more like if you're, if you're, if, if you're suffering in some way in your life or you're just curious or whatever it is, let's explore to see if there's a practice that that'll actually work for you. Um, and cause there's lots of different kinds of practices. So, so I had one idea that we should like make a booth. That says something like, uh, "We can help you meditate," and we should set it up at like random places because we're going to be driving across country, so we could be in front of like the world's largest ball of yarn, mm-hmm. or we should be we could be at um, a NASCAR race, or we could be at a gas station in wherever, um, and just set it up. And maybe well, it'll be crickets. Maybe nobody will care. That's fine. Or maybe like people come up to us and talk to us, and we can really get under the hood and see like if you're interested in doing this. Well, how can we help? Yeah, that sounds good. I mean, uh, for me, it's I. The one thing I don't like is this idea of somehow having to impose this style of working or this style of practice. What I've found by me, when I meet people is that often people do. They may not have a meditation practice, but there's some way in which they're doing something deliberate in their life to work on something about how they are that's already working. You know, there's a, there's some way that it's not working. You know, and that can happen in meditation too. You get into things where things will it'll really help you in a whole bunch of areas, but then there'll be some area of your life that you're just completely screwed still. You know, and, and no matter how much meditating you do, you can't seem to change that that pattern of behavior. You need to go to a different modality. So I think it's not going and saying, "Hey, we've got the elixir. This is it." It's more like, "Is this can this be a compliment to things you're already doing, or maybe it's something new that can help in this way?" You know, you just kind of got to read where people are at. Yeah, well, know? that's why we call the thing 10% happier. I mean, we're right. definitely not overselling. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, that's what I like about you. Where can people find out more information from you about you? I can tell people one place where they can get more information, which is 10% happier app because um, you're all over that thing. Um, but where else, like if people want to learn uh, more about you, what, where can they go? The main resource is my website, uh, which is jeffwarren.org. And you can kind of read about what I'm what I'm about there. There's some articles. I got like this retreat I'm doing in Costa Rica, which is going to be wicked. Um, uh, but then there's my passion project, this uh, meditation think tank and community hub in Toronto called the Consciousness Explorers Club. That has its own website. It's a bit of a disaster now. It's going to be updated, hopefully by the time this comes out. Uh, but that's really a, a resource for people anywhere in the world to read about uh, practices and how they work and consciousness. And we're eventually going to have like you know, you'll be able to listen along to different uh, um, guided meditations. And and there's there's other really good people in that community, good writers and thinkers about meditation. So those are the two. 
spots, I would say. I, I encourage everybody to actually sign up for your newsletter, even if you don't live in Toronto, which I don't, and most people don't. Uh, a lot of people do, but most people in the world don't live in Toronto. <laughs> That's um, true. And because uh, I, I signed up for it years ago, it made me want to move to Toronto because your writing in these newsletters, which are kind of sporadic, they only come once in a while, are is amazing. And um, you, it's... I'm not overselling this. Read these newsletters. They're really good. Also, you have a bunch of articles up at uh, some web publication called Psychology Tomorrow, um, which are <laughs> th- those articles are phenomenal. So I encourage everybody to go check those out. Also, there's the book, The Head Trip. Uh, Jeff Warren, thank you very much. Dan Harris, good to be here, bud. Okay, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please make sure to uh, subscribe, rate us. And uh, if you want to suggest topics we should cover or guests uh, we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter at Dan B. Harris. I also want to thank heartily the people who produce this podcast and really do pretty much all the work. Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, Andrew Kalb, Steve Jones, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. Uh, I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.